Welcome to Women in B2B Marketing, a show where CMOs, VPs of marketing, and all strong women leaders in B2B discuss their top tactics, strategies, and tips for building high-performing teams, leveraging trends, and ultimately rocking their marketing careers. Made by and for women, insightful for all. I'm your host and 15-year B2B marketer, Jane Sarah. Let's dive in. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Women in B2B Marketing. And today we have with us Michelle Galladay. And she told me it's like holiday, but with a G. I love that. I love whenever someone has a way to pronounce their name properly. So thank you. That's an amazing one. Michelle is VP of Marketing at Dacity, and she has such a great um, background. I'm so excited to dive in. She's led client marketing, partner marketing, overall strategies, startups, and huge companies. So excited to dive in. Thanks for coming today, Michelle. Excited to be here, Jade. Thanks for having me. Well, because I just alluded to your amazing background, if we could take a a rewind and go back a bit, how did you first get into B2B marketing and tell us about your journey to where you are today? For sure. So I started my career in journalism. And so I would call myself a failed journalist because I gave it a go and it didn't work out for me, but it is such an important function within our world. And so I cheering on my former colleagues and tried to stay well read, but I had to think about what I liked about the craft and where to apply that to my next career. So I love talking to people, conducting interviews, building graphs and infographics and research, and then also understanding different points of view and how to take those different points of view and present it in a a non-opinionated way. So I thought about business and marketing was a natural fit, marketing or PR. So um, I went to school for this. I studied at King's College London in the UK. I decided I need a big life reset. So I moved across the Atlantic and I was conducting a dissertation, a thesis around collecting data from smart technology devices, such as your smart TVs, et cetera. This was a while ago. So this topic was somewhat new. Yeah, ahead of the time. And newsworthy, pre-GDPR for UK listeners. So I was talking to a lot of different organizations, including IBM. So that turned into a potential career conversation. And I ended up just kind of instead of going through a grad scheme program or an internship, just found an open role. We trialed it out and then that turned into a a full-time job and visa sponsorship. So I am not British, but I consider myself somewhat British for the amount of time I spent over there. So that was really my first foray into B2B marketing. So doing product marketing for the mainframe and hardware server space. So within the IBM systems groups, that was my first job. And I've kind of stuck with B2B tech marketing since then. But I did my first job in marketing was actually at an art gallery in Mayfair in London, which was a great experience. Very cool. What was that about? Tell us a little about it. About the art gallery? Yeah. Like for you, what was your responsibility as a head of marketing? Uh, Yeah. You know, it was inviting potential clients to events there. I actually filmed one of our artists and did kind of like a 
sort of a weird documentary about him just filming on my DSLR camera and wandering around London and, you know, just wow. learned a lot about, yeah, just learned a lot about different forms of, of medium. And I just, I grew an affinity for content creation and also yeah. the power of in-person events from a consumer perspective, but it's very similar to B2B because buyers of art are, you know, you have those smaller targets, right? Who are the ones with the purchasing power and how do you get them wow. intrigued enough to come to your event? And then further than that, once you've hooked them there, how do you get them to purchase the art afterwards? How do you nurture them? How do you nurture those relationships? So a lot of similarities wow. there. <laughs> World Clownic, the video you're talking about reminds me of the, the documentary slash movie. What is it? Through the gift shop? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So cool. I love that. It's so funny how you can see, like you can take little bits of learning from different career steps and milestones and you just, there's ways to apply it to B2B in every way. And of course, your background in journalism is huge too. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want me to take you through further than that or or should we leave it there? Well, we shall, because I'm curious, you worked on a large company, like you mentioned, IBM, and startups like Wonderkinds, and sorry, is it Wonderkinds or Wonderkins? I've always wondered that. You could kind of choose your own adventure there, but <laughs> I call it Wonderkind. Wonderkind. That sounds, yeah, I think that sounds more right. And now Audacity. So curious, what would you say is the biggest difference between the two worlds of like a huge organization with so many layers and then the startup world? I would say like speed to impact for sure. Wow. I think you can do a lot of learning at a big corporation. You also have just so many resources available to you, mentors, and you can change careers at a really, really big company. You could change careers at a startup too, but there's that speed to impact, right? You join the organization, you can find something that's not yet set up and go set wow. that up very quickly and make a huge amount of operational impact at a startup. Whereas at a big corporation, so many things are already set up. So many tools are already set up. And so you're kind of just doing your role and filling in the charts that need to be filled in and you're, you're filling that role. And so the impact to stand out is a lot more I don't know, intentional work. And you have to really work that network within your community within a big corporation to kind of stand out, more. especially if you're just getting started. But I think big corporations just have so many resources to really to get you started. So I definitely appreciate having started at a big company, learning what I do and don't like, and then being able to kind of learn and pave my way within a small company. I think one of the things that I've brought and probably many others that started a big corporation and then moved into a smaller company is bringing that structure that organization yeah. to a smaller company, which is really going to drive an impact and get them ready as they as they move from different phases to different phases and 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 grow, move to different fundraising series, et cetera. Yeah. Do you think I've always wondered because it makes so much sense to start out at a large company, learn, silk it all in. And I love that about bringing the structure to a smaller company because we both know at startups we need that, both processes. Have you efforts or do you think it could work going the other way around? So starting out a small company and then transitioning to a large org, or would it be too much friction because it's so different? 
I don't know. I've definitely seen people do it and do well. They're looking for that stability and to take not necessarily a breather, but to rest assured that they can maybe work on other things in their life or not worry about the infrastructure falling at at any given point, right? At a small startup, things are changing every day. And getting used to that, I think, is is really great. But when you move into a bigger company, things are always changing, but they're moving at a, what would be considered a slower pace because there are so many layers of approval that need to happen before those changes are made. So I definitely yeah, have dude. seen it happen. I, it's hard for me to say definitively whether you can or can't do it. It really just depends on what you're looking for. I've seen a lot of people move right now. They're thinking of moving from smaller startups to bigger companies just because the environment is what it is right now. Whereas before, I saw a lot of people trying to get out of the bigger corporations and go to startups because of the amount of growth happening and the amount of flexibility and and the perks you get at certain startups versus the bigger companies where you're just getting that standard that standard package. So it really yeah. it really just depends on what you're looking for. And then you know work life balance. Sometimes work life balance at a bigger corporation is more available to you at a, than a small startup where it's all hands on deck all the time. But I would say for me personally, in my personal situation right now, I've, I've found that audacity, we really value work-life balance. So it really just depends on okay. a case-by-case basis. It does. The leadership, right? It like makes all the difference in how it they does. view that balance. Yes. And I, I've always heard this has stuck with me from a boss early on. He said, there's no such thing as work-life balance, it's work-life choices. I don't know how I yeah. feel about that. I, th- I think there is like coming from above is there's this big feeling of balance that's projected and shared and led by example, then I think that can filter down. It's not just about the choices that you make, but what the company provides and instills in you. Totally. Yeah. And speaking of leadership, you became a leader early on. You got into management and, and rose quickly. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey there and getting started managing teams and projects and your road to leadership? Yes. So about, I want to say three years into IBM, maybe a little bit more, I was working for a startup within the corporation, right? Which was my first indicator that I wanted to move into startup, right? Using different CRM tools, et cetera. The head of marketing, the director of marketing role was almost eliminated. That was where I sat under. So when that was eliminated, I assumed that role. And so that was kind of my first people management, first entire budget management, and then overseeing all of the factors within that startup, which was the weather company, as you probably know, the weather channel. So your your mobile app, weather.com, but this was B2B, so weather data for all different industries, et cetera. So that was my first that was my first role within management and I really could not have done that without solid mentorship right within that corporation and I was lucky to have worked within a different business unit before so I had lots of more senior people around me who could sit down with me every once in a while or take my random phone call in my time of need or or anxiety and, and help walk yeah. me off a ledge, help me think about something differently. So 
that was my first role into management. And then when I moved to New York to join Wonderkind, that was kind of the next step, that next wave, except moving geos, right? So that was also yeah. a different shift for me culturally. So going from oh, yeah. the EMEA market, right? How do I work with an Italian person? How do I work with someone in Germany? How do I work with someone versus how do I work with someone here locally in the UK? And then moving over and then also working with the global team, right? That sat in the US, right? Reporting yeah. up there and then localizing and setting those expectations downstream in the European market. And then moving to the US and taking on all of that culture, right? And, yeah. and taking on a team. But yeah, I probably had three or four years of being an IC before taking on a, a management role. Yeah, but that's huge and that's really fast. I was going to ask as a follow-up question, how did you know you were ready? But you almost didn't get to think about that because you were kind of thrown into it and the opportunity arose and you just stepped up and leveraged your mentor. There were certainly two options, right? I could have kind of seen it as, okay, there is no management role and... So I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing or yeah. number two, Slow. step up, seize the opportunity. And I definitely am an impatient person. <laughs> and um, I think what I've learned to become today versus then is, is really just humbly knowing where I'm at. Whereas yeah. then it's, it's just, just kind of like you have to ignore what you do and don't know and just try it out right? And test yeah. it out. Because at that point, I really didn't know how to do anything, right? So it's just, there are only so many things that you can manage at one given time without any experience. But most importantly to me was, what are the three biggest projects I can work on right now? And then number four, always looking at the budget and managing the budget, which was probably the, the scariest thing that, that I had done because it wasn't just my individual channel, it was all of the channels for that particular business unit, so. Yeah. Do you think the budget side of things and smart that that became like a number one for you to pay attention to? Yeah, pretty quickly that became the most important area for me to understand. So numbers coming in, numbers going out, right? And then understanding yeah. the ROI, but probably the most fun. The second hardest thing to do for me at that time was learning to manage people as well. And I think the same way I learned to find mentors and learned how they spoke to me, I also learned management by being someone who is managed, right? And identifying what I do or don't like about certain management styles and being able to deploy that downstream and really Probably the heart of all of that is just empathy, just empathy everywhere. It's the yes. same way you are empathetic to your sales stakeholders and your product team. It's the same way you have to go about management as well. And you're going to run into hiccups, especially for any young managers. You're going to run into trouble, especially if you, if you have a team member who may be more experienced than you just learning how to navigate that situation. But I think employing empathy is probably the, the key to success there. And, and I'm still that. learning. Yeah. I think you just nailed kind of two key factors of leadership, right? And it's number one, I love that with empathy. I think that has gone so far with me. And you're right on both sides, receiving empathy and seeing empathetic leaders ourselves, experiencing that, and then being the same, right? Embodying that and I mean, it's our people. So we care about our people that we hired. We want them to succeed. So I agree. 
And the second thing you just mentioned is always learning, right? Like you keep mentioning you're always learning. There's like knowing where you are and what you need to learn still and just growing. And just the fact that you are aware of that, you have that self-awareness and can see like open to growth. You're not going to close off. Like I've already known this. I've done this. This is how it is. That goes so far to me as a leader. I think you also, you shared a couple of um, the types of managers and leaders with me over email. And I, I would love to dive into this. It's so, it's interesting, funny, and just, I'd love to dive into it. You mentioned the swivel chair manager and the fighter. If you don't mind jumping into those two types of management. Yeah, yeah I feel like we could brainstorm all different kinds, but <laughs> as a, you know, as a middle manager, you're sitting in between leadership, or in my case, it could have been someone in HQ in the US. And the swivel chair manager is one I've identified with. And I, I know that I try to recognize if I'm doing it, right? So you're in a swivel chair, and you just move one direction, and you move back without providing any of your own guidance, right? So I have a question for the business swiveling, swiveling back, right? Or there's there's something coming from above and it's just swiveling and swiveling back. And I think this exists at a lot of organizations. And I think that it's sometimes it is necessary for certain middle managers to be just, I take the voice from above and I, I bring it down and I take this perspective and I go up. But if there's no fight there, right? So taking the perspective of the local geo or of the, the department that's communicating with you or the IC that's communicating with you, understanding, all right, why are you asking these questions? Especially if those questions are challenging, challenging leadership's perspective, right? Or yeah. I can't get this done because I don't have, I can't get X done because I don't have Y. And let me show you why. Rather than just taking that argument and then just copy pasting it into an email, right? Yeah. These swivel chair managers also t can tend to take credit for your success, yeah. for your individual's success. So it's just really important that if you're a manager and you are just kind of going back and forth between upwards and downwards, that you're fighting for that person and also giving credit where credit's due. And so I think that would be the difference between yeah. a swivel chair manager and a manager who fights and advocates. It doesn't yeah. mean that you always have to advocate for your team, especially if you don't, you know, and also setting expectations. If you think that the ask is, it's too much, right? It's not, we're not going to be able to do that for you. What can we do, right? Everything's kind of a negotiation because especially for your top people who are working really hard and they've worked hard enough to come and present a business case to you. You owe it to them to sit down to say, all right, what is the actual core issue here? Because I don't think that leadership's going to allow for that, right? So instead of just taking the exact ask, bringing it upstream, bringing it back downstream, and also giving access to your people, to the people that sit above you is super, super important. It shows that you trust them, but then guiding them and mentoring them on how am I going to build this business case to leadership, right? To executive yeah. leadership. That's so interesting. I love that one because you see that all the time where people can just pass things along like a, just a cog in a machine versus adding to it, building it out, pushing back, narrowing it down, like to having some kind of impact before it goes to your team or back up. Yeah. Really good. Time. Yes. I love that name though. I'm going to stick with that. The swivel chair swivel manager. Chair manager. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember where I picked that up, but I don't know if I made it up or picked it up, but um, that's yeah. definitely, that's definitely one of the, the words that I have used with people. 
in the past. And then the other type of leadership that I've grown to learn a little bit about since joining startups, right, just because of your proximity to the CEO, which goes back to the question of what's the difference between working at a big corporation and, and a smaller startup is just your proximity to the founder or the CEO. Yeah. It's much easier once you're at a startup, right? So there's all different kinds of CEOs, right? You can have your visionary who's really passionate. Perhaps they're a creative or when you're sitting in a marketing role, they think they're a marketer, right? So yeah. they're very, very involved. And then you have also the pro so then you have the sales CEO, right? The person who was in sales and is now the CEO of the company overseeing revenue. Then you have the product CEO. And so there's just differences between all of these different types of CEOs. And as a marketer, you really do need to learn how to work with each of those different types of personalities and skill yeah. sets. Because I think that with the sales CEO, right, it's almost like working with a CRO, but you're bringing in this branding component, right? And with the visionary who thinks they're a marketer, there's a lot of, I don't know, reverse management you have to do there yeah. to remind them <laughs> that, you know, you bring the expertise as well. And so there's a partnership that needs to happen there. But what's great is that person as a visionary, it's so easy to bring them on stage. It's so easy to, to bring them on the road with you. But you do have to do maybe a little bit more scripting because they are yeah. a visionary and they want to go off script. Guardrails, right? The product-led CEO is very organized, very task-oriented, but also really great if you're at a product-led growth company, your product marketing is leading the strategy in many cases, really good person to be partnering with from that perspective. So there's lots of, of pros and cons and, and things to maneuver with different CEOs that you're working with as a, as a marketing yeah. leader. It's a really good point. And it's, it's key to know that to identify. It's also the vice versa, right? Like knowing who your teammates are and on your team, what their yes. different personalities are and how to manage yes. those. There is one more um, manager style that you mentioned, the fighter. Can you describe that one a little bit? Yeah, the fighter, I think the fighter understands the task at hand and whether it's achievable with the resources available to the team. Do we have the right people in place? Do we have the budget to get it done? Do we have the external resources in place to get yeah. it done? Or is our team doing too much, right? And then also is management or leadership or your CEO or, or whoever it is, is asking something unrealistic or it doesn't align with the strategy, right? So, okay, we're going to ask for this on the side. Again, this goes back to a swivel chair manager. Someone yes. has an idea, want to, they want it done. Swivel chair manager is just going to say, find a way to get this done. They want it. Yeah, totally. The fighter is going to turn around and, and say, not even bring it up to the team until they've had that conversation and just say, I can't bring this to my team right now. Yeah. Right. Let's negotiate and talk about it. So I think the fighter is going to do everything they can, even if they lose, right, the argument. Yeah. The fighter is going to do everything they can to advocate for their team before bringing things downstream and delegating to what would maybe already be an overexhausted team. Yeah. The other thing is, is to just do we, how are we spreading all of the resources across equitably to the various members of the marketing team, right? Do we have the design resource in play? Do we have the copywriting resource in play? Do we have agencies or do we have certain members of the team doing too many things outside of their core scope of their role? to help fill in all yeah. of those resources that maybe we need to go and look at to acquire. Yeah, so this makes me think back to 
the leadership or kind of exec style that you mentioned is a visionary. I feel like the fighter has to be in place with a visionary CEO yes. because they're going to be throwing so many ideas at you. This person can't be a swivel chair manager in between because it'll just be chaos and nothing will get done. Precisely. Precisely. Yes. Almost always with a visionary CEO, you need a fighter in between the, yeah. the, the ICs and, and the CEO for sure. Yeah. yeah. So interesting. I love these titles. I'm totally going to adopt them and give you credit. It's funny. I, I love I my, favorite, my favorite part of marketing is like naming the personas. Branding. Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. I love it. It's funny because we're saying the word credit. And I feel like lately I've been sharing a lot on podcasts and just LinkedIn that credit is a word I hate and I want to get rid of it. But I should add a caveat to that only between sales and marketing. When it's credit, I feel like between sales and marketing, that should be thrown out. It doesn't matter. You're yeah. one team, one goal. But I very much believe in credit. Maybe it's more recognition amongst your recognition. team, right? And making sure people know, like, this team from Bob, this team from Janet, like, the, and bringing that above so everybody knows. Because it's so important that there's that two-way stream, right? Like what you were talking about between like getting access to upper management and the exec team, making sure they see who is really succeeding and doing amazing things on the ground. Yeah, I totally agree. Another thing I wanted to touch on with you, we're going to swivel, <laughs> speaking of the chair, um, to customer marketing. I know you have a lot here because you, I know you've overseen partnerships and, and customer client marketing before. I'm curious, you mentioned to me before I turned the mics on about activating clients as your best salespeople. Where do we get started there? How do you do that? I mean, if you're just starting from scratch, do you have some kind of a playbook or starter guide that you can walk us through? Yeah. So for sure, it's my favorite topic in marketing Yay. is how to get your clients to sell for you. It's not that easy, right? And I think most organizations will find a way to figure out how it will sit with some of sometimes within product marketing or sometimes within demand generation. And it really sits between new business sales, account existing business account management or or customer success and product marketing, right? So it kind of sits in between these wow. three in terms of where the, the client marketing, the customer marketing is gonna support those teams. But the first step is really figuring out who your advocates and detractors are. So perhaps you already have in your CRM data on this. It could come from the account manager or the CSM having to actually label the individual on the individual level, whether what type of profile they are. If you're there, you're ready to go. You're ready to start building a program. If you don't, doesn't mean that you have to start doing that, but that should be on your roadmap to figure out who the individual is within the organization, which is going to then kind of indicate to you whether the account on the account level is at risk or not, because the decision makers in an organization and their their influencers are going to make or break how the relationship goes, obviously, along with your product. NPS scores, CSAT scores, also really great place to get started. Those are going to be more on the end user of your product, right? So they're going to have the best insight into how things are going. But NPS scores, CSAT scores. Another thing to do is to ask your account managers or your CSMs, right? Are decision makers joining their QBRs? Are you doing QBRs, right? How frequently are you talking to your customers? 
as a marketing leader, when I onboard, and I think your last guest um, or one of your previous guests was talking about this, one of the best things you can do when you're onboarding into a new job is talking to your customers directly as part of that onboarding, right? You're talking to different wow. salespeople, you're talking to your product team, you're talking to CS, or also talk to some customers. If you are unable to get connected to a customer, that's a good indicator that some client marketing work is, is needed to help foster and facilitate those relationships. But yes. most likely your, your CEO or your, your executives are gonna have some contacts there. That's also a really good place to get started. Who are the folks that your leadership team is asking just on the side for a reference or quick question for advice, right? Those are going wow. to be your people, but you also want your advocate community to be representative of who your total addressable market looks like. So if your TAM is 25% enterprise, 50% mid-market, rest lower market, then you want your community, your advisory board, your referral program, your reference program, whatever it is that you're working on to basically increase retention rates, increase upsell, create demand upstream to reflect that buyer profile within your total addressable market. Yeah. What is a CSAT yes. score? I'm familiar with NPS, but I haven't heard that term before. CSAT scoring is just another way of, of assessing whether the customer is happy with your service or your product. It's just another okay. way of monitoring that. Cool. So very similar to NPS. But it's very, very similar. Style. Yeah, but you give okay. a score and then you give some qualitative feedback. Exactly. Uh -huh. Interesting. I need to look into that. Yeah, we had Wonderkin. No, it's okay. We had Wonderkin. We had CSAT scores regularly going out. And then we had Salesforce talking to a Google Sheet for my team, right? So we connected it to a Google Sheet. No one on my team was allowed to touch the Google Sheet because those records would be populating automatically as the scores came in. Then we were able to, to monitor that in near real time and understand it's not a good time to make that client ask, right? And I think the CSAT scores, I don't want to be wrong about this, but in an ideal world, those CSAT scores would also change the status of client health within the CRM as well, right? So if someone comes in and gives you a really low score, that should automatically trigger the client health to come down and trigger a, you know, action required response from the CS team. For sure. That makes sense a lot. And what would you do if you identified those advocates on that sheet? What was the next step for marketing? What would you do with those advocates? Right. So we'd have a wish list of different types of things we needed, right? Was it a case study? Was it a speaking engagement? Was it a, a video testimonial? Was it a G2 review? Was it a reference letter or a reference call or a referral program member where they want to join our advisory board? There's a menu of things we can do. Obviously, the bigger the client, the more recognizable the client, the more you want to get them on a PR release with you or out there on stage with you. But those are typically the hardest ones to ask. There's a lot of red tape, a lot of comms teams you need to, yeah. to maneuver through. And I think if you can get your client marketers, if you have that department or you're building that department, to have a, a relationship also with the comms people, your your biggest clients, that's that's a really good thing because you can go directly to that person to ask for a review on the content you're producing with them. But basically, it's just a quick huddle or a quick brainstorm on Slack on, hey, we just got this stellar review. What do we want to do with this? Wow. And going through the options. So you go through the menu. 
you just go, you look at the review and you just look yeah. back at the menu and you make the decision on, or you brainstorm the different options. You could yeah. do other things, right? A direct mail campaign with the with the client if you're if you're working in the retail or e-commerce sector. There's just so many co-marketing, right? There's there's so many things that that you can do. It also depends on the person who's left the review, right? How senior are they? And then doing just a little research on that person on LinkedIn. Yeah. You already see that they're on stage or taking a bunch of podcast interviews, then you know they're most likely gonna say yes to the yeah. ask. Yeah. Like, exactly. Love that. So do you recommend going forward with one ask from this menu of options or can do you ever bundle them up and ask for a few at once? Well, the other important thing to remember with client marketing, customer marketing is relationships. This is relationships yes. driven, right? You can go out with a, a bigger ask. One of our very recognizable clients sat on our customer advisory board and we actually presented a video testimonial to the board with another client. That individual reached out to me and said, I want to do one of these. And I was like, that's perfect. They had to name the time or place. So we were able to record yeah. a video with this individual and his team. And then a few months later, we also flew him out to do a, a testimonial on stage at a pretty big conference in New York. And wow. so we built out a written testimonial, a video testimonial, a stage presentation, and a press release all within the span of a couple months. Yeah. And ideally, you're doing that multiple times throughout the year. Yeah. So you can bundle them up, but it really has to start with a strong foundation of a relationship. Otherwise, the ask should be small and not too frequent. And you need a way to kind of measure the amount of communication happening with the customer as well. Yeah. So client marketing teams shouldn't be emailing clients without connecting that to HubSpot, connecting that to Salesforce so that the other teams can see, okay, we've clearly been communicating with this client. Client marketing teams should always be communicating with the CS or account management team, or at least giving them a heads up after the fact, just to let them know that, hey, this ask went out. I know that when I was at Wonderkin, we had a client ask button. We also had, I worked at a company called ShopRunner and led partner and co-marketing there. We had a very similar process there as well that we built out. So that just, it's really important that you track the activity so that you know you're yeah. not making too many asks. Because you know, there's other departments that are communicating with clients as well. That's and it really so depends on the need of the business at the time. If your sales team needs a reference straight away, I would go right back to that CSAT or that NPS list and and find the most recent customer, right? Just saying like, hey, would you mind conducting a reference? But references need to be matched like a matchmaker, right? So is it the same yeah, industry right. or same title? So a lot of this could be automated, but a lot of this also has a lot of matchmaking that you need to do. Yeah. That's yeah. such a good idea. I'm curious, you mentioned, I think you called it a customer ask button at Winterkind. Can you tell us what that inf what that is? I'm sure it's an yeah. actual button. I'm picturing the Staples button that, you know, they were selling or giving away that big red button. I forget what it even said now, but. <laughs> it is, you just press the button and you're asking on the account shell, right? So if I'm asking, I'm thinking about chocolate. So let's call it Godiva. So you're asking someone from Godiva for a reference letter or for a reference call for this prospect. 
and then you add in the details. So then the ask will then funnel over to the client marketing owner or the CSM or whoever, and they'll be able to see that that ask went out. The status of the ask okay. needs to be updated, right? So it's you could also build this in monday.com or asana or or whatever project management yeah. tool you heard as well but you you have to update the status to say declined or the csm said no or whatever the the idea with my team at that time was that we wanted to keep tickets moving we did not want tickets to say in progress for very long and then you can see when the last client ask was made, right? You can make a gut check like, oh, we asked a client for something three days ago. There's literally no reason yeah. why we should be asking this client for something else. So Exactly. Oh, that's so smart. I love that idea. I'm just like triggering a workflow that notifies people who need yeah, to know. I'm it's particularly on- important when your company's big, right? Yeah. So you have a lot of noise and a lot of initiatives going on. And I think for bigger organizations, process like that is is key. Yeah. You also mentioned customer advisory board. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how important this is at the startup stage versus at a more established or larger company. I think the board can take two meanings, right, for each stage of the company. I think in the earlier stages, your customer advisory board is really there on the product journey with you. Yes. Meeting more frequently, giving feedback in beta and alpha, you know, mode, it's really product led. Whereas later your advisory board almost serves as a, as a normal board, right? So giving you feedback direction of your organization, right? We used to just host networking events for our board as well, but that was late stage, right? So it was more so giving them a look under the hood of what's coming from a product feature perspective, implementing requests that they had made from the previous session, but that previous session had maybe been a quarter ago, and then showing those updates and changes. Whereas the early stage, you're really meeting more frequently and getting more granular and tactical on the on the product. Whereas later stage, it's more zoomed out where are we headed? What's happening? What big updates are on the roadmap? And then again, pulling in those advisory board members to test things out. But our advisory board at a later stage can also be comprised of executives. And those executives aren't going to be on the ground really doing the testing. They would bring in team members of theirs. There's There's all kinds of things that you can do with an advisory board. Launch a mentorship program for their, their team members or Invite them to your conference, invite them to test out the referral program. I have used and worked with advisory boards to help us with our marketing strategy, which has been the most rewarding output of an advisory board. What newsletters are you reading? What influencers are you listening to? Yeah. What events are you going to this year? What events are you not going to this year? What podcasts are you listening to? What's your favorite type of content? I love that because I'm a big fan of surveys, like either annual or twice a year, just to check in with the larger customer base for that intel. But the response rate realistically is going to be pretty low. But if you're leveraging an advisory board, it's going to be way more detailed information because they agreed to be a part of this, this board to give you this exact intel. So that's that's so smart to leverage the board for that marketing intel. Yeah, I find the more you communicate with these advocates, the more likely they are to renew, obviously, yeah. to to upsell, right? 
to net new products or expansion. Yeah. And to do favors, right? To give back, right? The key to an advisory board is what are you giving to them? Understand the value, like anything, what value are you giving back to this community where it doesn't feel like work to, to ask for a favor in return? Yeah. I love that. And you mentioned, do you think that um, in the early stage, so when you're first creating an advisory board, customer advisory board, is it more so the users to advise on the product side and then later stage it switches or transitions more so to the exact side? Exactly. Exactly. That's what I've experienced in, in my time building them at least. Yeah. So you can hold two seats for them, right? So you can say, okay, you're the user of the product and you're the contract signer. You don't say that to them, but it's like yeah. you're the decision maker, the executive that we need to continue to maintenance this relationship. Yeah. And then you have the, the end user. And it's it's actually really good thing for this end user's boss to know that this person is sitting on this product advisory board or yeah. customer advisory board. Do you think you would put them both together then? So the advisory board... Do you kind of speak to them individually or bring them together as a group? What have you seen work best? Really depends on what the nature of the content is. It's really, really technical and in the weeds. I would probably only be inviting your end users to that kind of mm-hmm. session. If it's more of a presentation of what's to come, then I would invite both. Yeah. So, so you have to think about it on the board together, but it depends on how you mix and match them. Yeah, yeah. The You have like a logo wall of who's on your board and then you have the individual members listed out. You could also have an executive cab versus a normal cab, right? So you can make it anything you want, really. Yeah. It's just yeah. time consuming, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that every company should really have some form of a customer advisory board? I believe if you are at a company that is working on your product and evolving your product, you absolutely should have a customer advisory board because it really feeds into so much. And it, I think the other thing is it needs a dedicated owner to keep it going. Otherwise yeah. it gets downgraded against other priorities and the yeah. maintenance is key to its success, right? So it's like any community that you're building. It needs, yeah. it needs maintenance. And eventually we'll take on a life of its own. You'll have members of your board connecting with one another, which is a beautiful thing to see. Yeah. Last question on the board. So I feel like this could be the whole episode of just customer advisory (laughs) boards 101. Do you see it as sort of a micro community where you bring them together and then you kind of grow from there and there has to be some kind of a communication or can you keep it simple to start and have it just be, you get everyone together once a quarter virtually or in person kind of start small in that way? I think it would just depend on whether you have someone really truly owning this or not. If you do not, I think having the quarterly touch points is sufficient. If you do have someone owning this, you can build a community out of it, right? I've tested out Slack groups. I tried a LinkedIn group once. The LinkedIn group was not, it did not work. (laughs) But you have to try things. There's such potential there, but it just seems to we would have a newsletter that would go out to our advisory board at both companies where I built one a special newsletter that would go out and a printed book as well that was exclusive to CAB. Again, these are all perks that go back to the advisory board. But I think at its core, those quarterly meetups are super important. If you have too many wow. things going on, you might have too much drop off as well. But knowing that those four meetings happen and getting those on the books as early as possible 
rather than throwing them on at the end of each quarter is probably another piece of advice I have just so people have it on the calendar. Think of it like running your own company board. You want to get those meetings on the calendar, you know, when they're happening, you're taking into consideration all of the time zones. So you can get a feel for how many people can attend. If you're starting to see a lot of people drop off, maybe you picked a date where everyone is busy or at the same conference or it's around a a bank holiday or, or whatever it might be. So you can get a feel for whether you need to move that meeting. But um, yeah. obviously, the more you can communicate, the better through different channels. And then for Very smaller cool. companies that are continuously iterating on their product, those could look like monthly touch bases with those end users. Those could look like bi-monthly, et cetera. Really depends on the need of the product. And I think that getting the buy-in from your product team is also a really early stage requirement of, a, of an advisory board. Yeah. This is, I would love to dive into this more with you separately. Maybe we can collab on something again because customer advisory reports. There's so Absolutely. much to learn there. You can write your own book on this because this is just so, <laughs> I want to be a sponge on your customer advisory board intel. But thank you so much, Ms. Yeah, of course. And if anyone wants to reach out to me on LinkedIn and talk about this anymore, I'm, I'm available and always happy to meet fellow marketers. Well, thank you so much for joining this. I mean, all of the insight on just management styles and rising to leadership, your career journey, and all of this customer marketing stuff, just so, so helpful. So thank you. I have a ton of tips to bring back for my company and volunteering. Always a good sign of a good, good uh, chat and interview. So thank you. Thanks, Shane. I have so much joy listening to your podcast and I'm so excited to be on. Thank you. That means the world to me. And for all the listeners, uh, again, connect with Michelle, connect with me on LinkedIn. We're, we're friendly people. We love to connect and chat. And if you like the show, which I'm sure you did, I hope you did, uh, like, share, recommend, share with the friends. It all, all helps the show grow. So thank you everyone for listening. And thanks again, Michelle. <laughs>